rental real estate to me is just a good way to be able to extract more cash with less money. Let's say you can buy a house for $100,000 and rent it out for $1,000 a month. That is basically a 12% cash on cash return, not including expenses. But it just gives you a better way to get better returns than your money would traditionally get every year in the stock market. And it gives you a little bit more control over it. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast. I am sharing with you another oldie but goodie episode that I released way back in the day. This was episode, originally episode 47 with Sylvia. And so if you're an OG journeyer who has been listening from the beginning, then you may remember this episode. But if you're totally new, then you're going to love hearing Sylvia's story. She was actually one of my favorite interviews that I've done. I mean, I've, again, I've done so many great interviews, but I really do love talking to people who are literally in the middle of the journey or even towards the end, but they don't have a book. They don't have a blog. They're just people living their lives, doing things extraordinary and even, you know, ordinary things that have extraordinary results. I feel like those are the most impactful for hopefully you listening because you listening right now, you know, you maybe you're not a blogger or you don't have a course or you're not, you, you're not you don't have a book that you're writing but you you want you want your life to change, you want financial freedom. And so what better way to get inspired or learn about that from someone who's just like you doing something. And so Sylvia originally came on the podcast and she talked about paying off six figures of law school debt, becoming financially independent, but also she talked about a very real side of this journey which is having to incorporate taking care of her family. So even extending when she was quitting and retiring early so that she can take care of her family members, which I thought that's super relatable and something that a lot of us go through. And we also talk about just how she, even though she was a lawyer, to help pay off her debt, she used to deliver pizza, you know, after work and on the side. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I need to find Sylvia so I can do an update episode on her because I feel like so much must have changed for her since she last came on. But I hope you enjoy this episode in the meantime. Let's dig in. Journey to Launch is supported by First Republic Bank. Who doesn't want the best of both worlds? Like being able to stay at a five-star resort, but pay two-star prices or the dream I'm living now, working for myself and bringing an income to support my family. What if a bank could give you the best of both worlds too? With a secure banking app that allows you to bank from anywhere, anytime, and a dedicated personal banker when you need one-on-one service, First Republic is uniquely positioned to offer the best of both worlds. I love that I can reach out to my personal banker, Linda, if I have any questions and that I can quickly access all of my account information and pay bills through the app. With this combination of personal attention and convenience, it's no wonder that First Republic Bank has a client satisfaction rating two times the industry average. So whether you're starting on your financial journey or planning for your future, you can count on First Republic to be there for you every step of the way. 
Visit firstrepublic.com today to learn more. That's firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this episode. In the show notes, you'll get the transcribed version of the conversation, the links that we mentioned, and so much more. Also, whether you are an OG journeyer or brand new to the podcast, I've created a free jumpstart guide to help you on your financial freedom journey. It includes the top episodes to listen to, stages to go through to reach financial freedom, resources, and so much more. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart to get your guide right now. Okay, let's hop into the episode. Hey, journeyers. I am excited to have Sylvia Hall on the podcast. Hi, Sylvia. How are you? Good. Great to be here. And I wanted you on the podcast because really you are pursuing financial independence. You have such a relatable story on how you discovered it and what prompted you to get on this journey that I think will connect and resonate with a lot of listeners. And so I wanted to give you the platform to talk about your journey. All right. Well, I am about three years away from retirement now. I technically hit my number already, but uh, due to my family and how they love coming up with random expenses, I'm working an extra three years just to build a little bit of a cushion. My journey initially started with six figures in debt, a law school degree, and a hurricane. And after kind of starting over and realizing that I didn't want to be in debt anymore, my initial goal was to get out of debt and then gradually realized that, wow, okay, I've got enough money to see if I don't have to work anymore. And so it, it kind of started from the decision to go to law school, ending up in debt, and then just working hard to get out of debt and keeping that going after I got rid of the debt that I wanted to get rid of. And then just kind of realized that the numbers worked and I could walk away for good. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned so many points I want to get into in our conversation. One was the family aspect of it, because I want to understand that dynamic more. And I had a feeling of what you meant, but I think that a lot of people probably can relate to possibly outside um, family. You know, I don't know if it's you call it a burden or family obligations, which affect your journey. If you have people who are dependent on you or you realize that, you may need to help more people outside of your immediate family. It's going to take you a little bit longer than to reach some of your goals. So that was one. And I love that you said you started with six figures in debt, a law degree and a hurricane. It sounds like a subtitle to a book, (laughs) (laughs) but let's talk about that. So you are a lawyer. You mentioned that just now you have a law degree. And because of that, you graduated with tons of debt. Can you just go back to that point in your life where you're in law school, you have this debt, and then what caused you to realize like, wait a second, I have to get out of this. Yeah. So I was one of those people who majored in every conceivable thing that didn't lead to a job. And so my solution was to go to law school and I loved it. I love all the friends that I made there. I'm still in touch with them. But there was a complete disconnect between filling out the forms for loans and then what that meant as far as paying those loans back. And so I graduated from law school. This was way back in 05. So I graduated from law school. And then I got the letter in the mail that basically said, you've got a six month grace period. And then after that, we expect you to start paying us back. And then just doing the numbers on what that meant 
And I signed up for a, a pretty lengthy repayment period. And so that was the first time when in my life's journey, I didn't have the automatic next step. So there was no next degree to get. It was just you're working and then all of a sudden you're paying back this debt. And it just felt like such a burden that I was going to be carrying for decades. And so at that point, I decided, okay, first goal is to get rid of this debt. Full disclosure, I still have my federal debt because that's at 1.6% fixed rate interest, but I got rid of all of my private loans. And so that became goal number one. Mm -hmm. And now, so you also went to undergrad at Spelman, right? Correct. Yes. But you didn't have any loans there. Did you just get scholarships? Yeah, I got scholarships. And then I just kind of worked on the side. I've always had side jobs, nothing too major. So that was more just fun, but came out of undergrad with no debt and didn't realize the gift that that was and promptly proceeded to turn that around by going to law school. Mm -hmm. And so you ended up in law school at Tulane in New Orleans. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. So you went to law school, you graduated with the tons of debt now, six figures worth of debt. And then the hurricane happened? Hurricane happened. So I took the bar in July of 2005. Basically, I started my first real full-time job after law school about one week before the hurricane hit. I basically depleted my savings to take the bar uh, and to pay for the bar exam and rent and everything while I was taking the bar because I didn't work at that time. Went back to work and then Hurricane Katrina hit. I had basically a weekend's worth of clothes. I evacuated to Houston thinking I was just going to be right back in New Orleans and continue working. And then the levees broke. And my job, they called me and basically said, we'd love to keep you on. You still have a job, but the building is shut down for the next six months. So come back in six months. We'd love to have you. And the problem with that is that I was completely broke, already six figures in debt from law school, and I had rent that I had to pay for an apartment in New Orleans. And that same weekend, my landlord basically called and said, I'll let you out of your lease, but you've got to get everything out this weekend. And so I had my late 90s Civic that I still drive, my dog. I threw everything that I could into the car and everything else literally had to be thrown away. The city was a ghost town. There were no U-Hauls. There were none in Houston either where I evacuated to. And so I literally had to throw everything away. And there's nothing like watching everything that you paid money for going to the dumpster to make you realize, okay, number one, things aren't all that important. And number two, having a good financial backbone so that this hurricane situation didn't completely upend my life was the next goal. And so... I relocated to Houston, worked as a legal secretary for six months, then made it back to New Orleans. And then my number one goal was to get out of debt. And so I was working as a lawyer by day. True story, I was working for Domino's Pizza by night and on the weekends, cut down on my grocery bill quite a bit. And that money from Domino's was purely to put towards my debt. And so it started out as 100% towards debt. And then when I decided that I didn't want to dodge hurricanes every year, it also became a fund to save money for my eventual move to Seattle. Now, it sounds like that hurricane, that forcing of you to get rid of so much 
really probably jolted you into this simplistic life, like where you realize that you didn't need as much as you had to survive, right? It really did. It really did. I kind of became an accidental minimalist to the point that I was really big into the tiny house movement. And I was was really gung-ho about getting my little tiny house of 200 square feet. But when I realized there was no indoor plumbing, that kind of put the kibosh on that. But I did end up getting a condo in foreclosure here in Seattle that nobody else wanted. It's only 400 square feet. So it was double the size of everything I was looking at and way too small for everyone else. So it ended up helping in other ways, too. And I don't want to gloss over this point of your story where you said you were working full time as a lawyer, but still delivered Domino's pizza on the weekends for extra money. Yes, nights and weekends. So I would go home, change from my suit into my little Domino's getup, and then just deliver pizzas until the store closed. And it was actually a really fun job. You meet a lot of interesting people. Some of them I actually worked with as an attorney. So those are always interesting front door conversations. Oh, you mean like you would deliver a pizza to like a fellow attorney and they'd be like, what are you doing here, Sylvia? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So that happened about three times. But yeah, it was really, really quite interesting. And it, it didn't seem crazy at the time. All my friends were telling me that I was crazy. But to me, my goal was to get out of debt. A lot of the tips were paid in cash. Don't tell the IRS. But it was just a good way to get money on a daily basis and have a job that didn't really require you to take it home with you since I had enough of that as an attorney. And it was before Uber and my car would never be Uber approved. So that was my side gig way to make some extra money. At that point, how much debt did you have? So you're out of law school now, you're working as a lawyer, you're doing Domino's Pizza. What was your debt amount at that point? I started out with just over a hundred thousand in debt. That was the first time that I had seen a number that large in terms of someone saying, you owe this to me. And what I had to do just to keep from completely panicking was to break that down into small chunks. And so even though the total number was a lot, I broke that out between private and federal loans. And then for the private loans, you had to reapply each year. I was able to break that into smaller chunks. And so what I did was just wrote down each loan. It was kind of a painful process, but I wrote down each loan and then the corresponding interest rate to each loan. And then I just had a plan of attack in the bite-sized chunks of the loans. Because when I just looked at the total number, I would literally walk down the street and see a homeless person and say, wow, they have a higher net worth than I do. It was just a very mind-changing experience to see that much debt associated with my name. So you broke things out into smaller chunks. So it seemed it made things more digestible for you to to take on. Absolutely. Yes. I'm curious, like with the Domino's job, how much would you say that contributed? Like how much you made from that that helped towards paying off that debt? I was able to make a pretty good clip. And since I volunteered for the shifts that no one else wanted, so I did the Friday and Saturday night shifts to close, I was able to make a good $500 a week doing that job. And so that was $2,000 a month that I put towards debt. Mm, Wow. Okay. It was the Friday and Saturday night shifts that were the big ones. What I tried to do is to make sure that I earned more money at Domino's that I spent during the day, not including rent. And so that was my way to just keep a check on what I was paying 
and what was going out and what was coming in. And I've never been good at budgeting or discipline. So the internet and just sort of automation really helped me out. And so what would happen was I would have my paycheck deposited into my bank account. And then I would leave myself a certain amount of discretionary spending each month. I tried to keep it in the 200 to $300 range per month. And then at the time, I didn't have enough money to invest in Vanguard because their funds required $3,000 to start. So I started at T-Roll Price because they didn't have minimum amounts at the time. And so I started my Roth IRA and I also just started just sort of a side savings account that all my money was automatically transferred to those accounts with the exception of that discretionary spending amount. And so I was never want to do a budget of like this amount, this amount, that amount. But I always tried to tell myself, okay, this is your fun money. Everything else needs to have a purpose. So it seems like after you made sure all the bills were paid, you just broke things out into bigger buckets. And I think that's actually helpful for people listening who really have tried budget. So, I mean, I'm a budget fan, especially for those starting out, just so they can be clear about where they're spending. But I also think you have to be realistic and it's not for everyone. So I like that you were able to figure out a plan and a system that worked for you. But the main thing I'm hearing is that you had to stick to it, right? So it's just like you had these buckets, but you automatically transferred things into the accounts that were important to you, which were the investing and saving. So while paying off debt, you were still investing. Yes. My um, journey also started with just the library. So the personal finance section became my second home. I can still, I think it's like 332.024 for the number in the system. And I read everything I could get my hands on. And I came to the realization when you're starting out with 100,000 in debt and you see the estimated time frame for paying that off was forever. And so to me, it was like, if I don't just start investing while I have the debt, I won't be investing anytime soon. And so I just forced myself to also invest. And I told myself that if I can earn a decent rate of return, then it makes sense to go ahead and invest, even though I had six figures of debt. At the time, now you're a lawyer. Were you making a lot of money? Were you at the six figure mark when you were still working at Domino's or you had to work up to that? Not even close. I wasn't even making half of six figures at the time. So I just found an apartment got a roommate, everything was split in half. That's the other thing they don't tell you before you go to law school. You have these dreams of big time law firms. I worked for a small insurance defense firm. Love everyone on that job, but yeah, not rolling in the dough at all. Then I had the six figures of debt, hence the job at Domino's. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great misconception to talk about because people do assume if you are a lawyer or a doctor, like you immediately come out and I don't know about doctors yet, but it seems like with lawyers, that's not a given six-figure income. You have to work up to that or be in a certain type of legal field to get that amount of money. Yeah. Honestly, I wouldn't want that type of job anyway. Everyone I know who's been at the really big law firms where you make a lot of money, the stress isn't worth it to me. I mean, I know the paycheck is nice, but I value quality of life a little bit more. Not knocking anyone who's got that job because those jobs take a lot of work to get. But in the end, I'd rather have a little bit more quality of life. And now you have your own law firm, which we'll talk about later. But knowing what you know now about the law and the debt you got in, and would you do it all over again? Would you still pursue your law degree at the price you paid? 
I think I would have taken some time off in between undergrad and law school to really figure out if I wanted to practice law. I was more intent on going to law school just to have a next step. I hadn't really thought about what the practice of law was like and what type of law I wanted to practice. So I think I did it backwards and just sort of forced myself into law school and took the job that was available. It ended up working out, but if I could go back, I would have had a little bit better of a game plan as far as what post-law school life looked like. Okay. And then I'm assuming you didn't have much credit card debt in this time because you seemed very disciplined. So it was really just your student loans that you were working to pay off? Just student loans. I think I'd applied for a credit card. I think it was at a baseball game to get a free beach towel or something. And I think I had a credit limit of $500. So no credit card debt at the time. So that was good. So everything was basically student loan debt. I know you moved from New Orleans to Seattle. So at what point after graduating did you do that? I graduated from law school in 05, moved to Seattle in 08. And it's kind of a funny story. I knew how long I needed my money to last and I didn't have a job at all when I moved to Seattle. So I looked on Craigslist, rented a room and a house. So it was just me and my dog the stuff I could fit in my little 90 Civic and rented a room in a house on Craigslist. The guy I rented a room from was really, really nice. But the story of, hi, mom and dad, I'm moving in with the guy I've never met, sight unseen. This is my new address. It prompted them to get on a plane and come out to Seattle to make sure that I was still okay. Yeah. So budget was on my mind, rented a room in a house in Seattle found a job about a month later, and everything kind of worked from there. What prompted the move? Why Seattle and you didn't have a job? So what were you expecting to do? Well, there are a couple of other hurricanes that were threatening New Orleans. And I just knew that I didn't want to play hurricane roulette year in and year out. Love the city, love the people. But I just knew that sort of hurricane dodging wasn't for me. I picked a city in a state that didn't have any state income tax where I thought the economy in the city was doing well. And that was important because I felt like if the city had a thriving economy, it would be easier to find a job. And so all the states with no state income tax that were also hurricane prone, that was Florida and Texas, I ruled out. And Seattle was sort of the last city standing. That's how I picked Seattle and just got in the car and drove up and things fortunately worked out. But I got here in, I want to say it was May of 2008, and then the economy promptly fell apart. So I was really lucky to get the job when I did. And I worked that same job until I started my own law firm in January of last year. You were in New Orleans working, paying off debt. So when you moved to Seattle, how much debt did you have at that point? Let's see, I had been taking 2000 a month basically towards debt for three years is about how it added up. So I was able to put a significant debt in most of my private loans. I still had my federal loans, which I'll keep forever because they're at 1.6% interest. So I think when I moved to Seattle, I think I had about 20,000 in private loans left and the federal loans, since they were so cheap in terms of the interest rate, I still have those. Right. And that's because you know that you can earn more investing that money instead of paying off the debt. So you're comfortable with just keeping it. Right. And if something were to happen to me, if I became disabled or there are all sorts of 
things you could do for federal loans, like the income-based repayment or deferment or forbearance, that you don't have those same options with private loans. And so I figured I was willing to take the risk with the federal loans, whereas that wasn't the case with the private loans. Mm -hmm. And also what I'm hearing with your story is that I'm going to get personal. I'm assuming that at that time, maybe you were single. That time and this time. (laughs) Okay, because one of the things I think that holds people back from making decisions like this, which would help their finances, whether that's move or live in one room of a house and deliver pizzas on the weekend, is that if you're in a relationship where you have kids, it's a harder decision to make because you're more tethered to something or someone. So it seems like the flexibility, just being single in that way, allowed you to really go after what you wanted and really just be selfish in a good way for yourself, which is awesome. Absolutely. So it allowed me to not take anyone else's anything into consideration and just figure out what made the most sense. It's funny when I do date guys, it becomes pretty clear early on. I'm into frugality to a certain degree. And so fancy restaurants kind of turn into picnics. (laughs) There are all sorts of ways to date frugally. But I do think that being single or not even necessarily just being single, but not having kids, because that changes the time that you have to be in a certain place drastically. But even if you're in a relationship, if both people are on the same wavelength and both people can kind of figure out, okay, this is our time to be together let's make sure that that time is sacred and then work around that. I think it can still work. But I do think that being single really helped me not take any options off the table. Mm -hmm. And then when we talk in the bigger scope of just financial independence, so now you're about three years out from your target goal. What is your idea of financial independence? Because I know we're going to talk about your investments, like what you're investing in, how you're doing it. What does that mean to you? To me, it means not having to do anything at any particular time. Right now, what I plan to do as soon as I walk away is just kind of Airbnb it around the world, really try to learn different languages, get immersed in different cultures. That's the plan. I understand that that could get a lot older than I think it will. I think I'll be able to do that for a pretty long time. But I've talked to several people who have done it, who have gotten burned out. But my plan is to travel for 10 months out of the year and then be home to visit family and friends, basically the last two months of the year. And then just to pick another city and kind of rinse and repeat. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. Right. You have your own law firm now. What do you practice or what does your law firm specialize in? I do general insurance defense, and then I also do family law and immigration law on a pro bono basis. All right. So you're working now for yourself, which I'm assuming gives you some flexibility. So sometimes that's the next step in the financial independence journey, because, for example, there are people who now are working for someone and they don't like that. They rather at least work for themselves, even if the hours are the same, but it's at least they're controlling their time and what they take on. So you now have that flexibility or that control because it's your own business. But for you, it's not necessarily about the flexibility of it. It's really about not having to work for that paycheck anymore, seems like, right? It was kind of a two-part thing. One part was the flexibility. I do love the flexibility. But the other part was just the ability to tap investments in a different way. So being self-employed allowed me to open up a self-directed solo 401k. 
It also means that you can contribute more to your 401k each year. So when I was an employee, the most that you could put in was 18000 a year. I think now it's eighteen five. But as a solo practitioner, I'm allowed to put in 20% of everything that I make with the limit of, I think it's 54000 or something like that, that you could put in per year. Not quite there, but it just opened up a lot more space to get into a lot more tax deferred investment space. And I'm looking to buy an apartment complex, a small complex back home with my 401k. And I wouldn't have had the ability to do that as an employee. And let's talk about what you're investing in. So now you don't have any private loans. So you're not as focused on debt anymore. You got that out the way. Where are you investing your money? Right now, the bulk of everything is at Vanguard in just a simple three fund portfolio that's pretty vanilla. But since it's in a self-directed 401k, I'm looking into getting more into real estate. My condo here in Seattle will be a rental. I've got a rental house in the Nashville area, and I'm looking to buy the apartment complex back in St. Louis. We'll see how that goes. But just looking at the numbers, if you follow a 4% safe withdrawal rate, rental real estate to me is just a good way to be able to extract more cash with less money. Let's say you can buy a house for $100,000 and rent it out for $1,000 a month. That is basically a 12% cash on cash return, not including expenses. But it just gives you a better way to get better returns than your money would traditionally get every year in the stock market. And it gives you a little bit more control over it. So real estate to me is a shortcut to getting better returns than you would necessarily get with just a 4% safe withdrawal rate. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things that you're doing with your self-directed 401k is you're actually buying real estate as the asset from that retirement account, which I didn't know you could actually do. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. So when you are an employee, you generally have your whatever retirement platform is offered by your employer. And that's typically some combination of cash, stocks, and bonds and mutual funds or ETFs or something along that line. That's not the total universe of what you can invest in. According to the IRS, instead of having stocks and bonds, so like for me, I'm a big S&P 500 or total stock market index person, but instead of going with an S&P 500 index fund, you can go with an apartment building. And so you're not limited to just what you think of as traditional retirement investment vehicles. I think outside of collectibles and actual raw land, I think you can actually hold just about anything as an asset with your retirement account. And for people who are really focused on saving and who have had access to an employer's 401k, you can over the years accumulate a lot of money in that. And instead of having that invested in stocks and bonds where you kind of cross your fingers and hope that the market doesn't go down, when you have a solo self-directed 401k, instead of having that money in stocks and bonds, you can go out and buy real estate with that money instead of your traditional stocks and bonds. And then the rent that you get from that property goes back into your 401k. Are there any resources you can recommend to listeners who want to learn more about that or whether it's a podcast or blog or book? 
that you've read? Yeah, um, there are, if you go to Bigger Pockets and just put in self-directed 401k, you can also do it with an IRA, but there are some rules about mortgages that make it more appealing to do it with the 401k. But I would say Bigger Pockets is one that's got a lot of resources. And if you go to the forums and just put in IRA, you'll get a lot of posts and you'll be connected to people who specialize in that. Bigger Pockets, by the way, is like a popular podcast and blogs, if in case anyone listening hasn't heard of it. So I'll link that in the show notes for sure. And actually, I have a question just in terms of if you're comparing that to investing in a REIT, what are your opinions on the actual investing in an actual property versus like a REIT through your 401k? To me, a REIT is good if you just want exposure to real estate as a method of diversification. But REITs aren't really good in terms of having control over what that REIT is investing in. So REITs are a good way to get exposure to real estate in a non-hands-on way. The actual real estate is a better way of having complete control over the property, being able to control the returns on paper. Of course, a roof can need repair or what have you. But when you have actual real estate, you just have more control over your returns, the property, the tenants, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And REIT, by the way, just for anyone who's not had that term before, it's real estate investment trust. So it's like investing in companies that own or finance income producing real estate or property sectors. I want to go back to something you mentioned in the beginning of the interview about you actually reached your number. So technically, if you wanted to probably quit today and just like start traveling, you could, but there are some family things that you're realizing that, you know, I need to save some more. Do you want to expand on that? Because I actually think a lot of people can relate to having that kind of pressure from outside people or family on this journey. Yeah, sure. I feel like I'm lucky and have a great family, but they are just <laughs> really good for coming up with really expensive issues at random times. So anything from car repairs where there's always an intent to be paid back, but you just never know if you will be. And for me, I never count. Anytime I give money to something, I never expect to get anything in return. And to me, that just eliminates any potential hostility or bad blood. But my parents are getting up in age. My mom is retired and I kind of help her navigate through retirement. But they're just soon going to be in a position where they don't have any money coming in. And so anything that's a big expense might require them to need some help. And I've got a couple of younger brothers who like to get into car accidents and things like that. So I just try to help out where I can. And I'm doing a better job of saying no. But to me, part of why I wanted to save and part of early retirement does involve a certain aspect of being able to help out my family. And so instead of saying, nope, you're on your own, I just built that into the equation, but more so for my parents because they're getting up there. And so far, so good. There hasn't been anything major so far, but I just know as they both get older and both are retired, that anything like I was able through travel hacking to send my parents to France for my dad's 70th birthday. I just like doing little things like that because I've been fortunate enough to have great parents been fortunate enough to never have really wanted for anything in a, in a serious way as growing up. And so it's just my desire to be able to make things comfortable for them and not have that be a financial burden 
to me and not have them feel like they are a financial burden. So these next three years are just to have a little bit of a cushion. And the trip to France, I think, cost me about a hundred bucks altogether, thanks to travel hacking. But just little things like that that I want to be able to do and help out with. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just like listening. I'm like, wow, you are a good daughter. <laughs> I mean, like even a sister to really bake into your plans. And it's unfortunate because I feel like a lot of the older generations, our parents and grandparents aren't well equipped for what happens after they stop working. Some of them can't even stop working. And so obviously it affects you because you don't want to see people you love, especially when you know that they provided for you and helped you along be destitute or put out of anything. So you do want to help. But are there ways in which you're talking to your parents now about how they can get more on track? Or do you feel like it's kind of too late? Like, what is the plan? Can you sustain them in retirement and yourself in retirement going forward? How does that work? For the most part, they're pretty good and they're older. So they're now both collecting social security My mom was fortunate enough to work for a company in which they had an actual pension. My dad does not work for a company that has a pension. And I think what happened in my parents' generation is they really thought that you work for a company, you get social security, you're good. And along the way, social security just isn't enough to sustain the type of lifestyle that you're used to. And so my mom is good because she's got a small pension And I've shown her how to really understand money, understand where her money is. I had to convince her not to get an annuity. And all of a sudden, there are people who will say, free dinner if you let me pitch this idea to you. So I think my mom's in a place where she kind of understands everything. My dad's retirement plan, honestly, is to just work forever. And I'm like, that's not really an option. At least that's not an option you plan for. So we'll see what happens when it comes to him, but he knows and he's taking steps in the right direction, but his plan really is to work forever. And so for me, the way I look at it is one rental income in retirement is basically the parent fund. And so that's kind of my overall plan. And as long as nothing exceeds that, we should be okay. Because for my parents, for the most part, they are on basically fixed income. Like my mom, with everything that she has, she gets a certain amount per month. And that's usually fine. It's just that if there's some sort of fluke incident, like a car accident, where all of a sudden you've got to pay a deductible to get your car fixed. So I'm not really enabling people to make bad decisions or anything like that. So I don't want that to be the image that comes out. But a lot of my family They don't have access to high amounts of short-term cash, and that cash is needed to get you over the hump. So when a brother's in a car accident and he's got like a $1,000 deductible and he needs the car to get to work, it's things like that where it's a lot of money, but at the same time, if it's not paid, then there are all sorts of other collateral incidents that happen. So it's few and far between as far as the actual incidents, but I know that there will be incidents. I think my dad might be a little bit of of a lost cause in terms of coming up with a real long-term plan because he's just been of the mindset that he's going to work forever. 
since as long as I can remember. But the two of them together should be okay. And to the extent that they're not, that's where I'll just kind of chip in and help out. I'm actually curious as you're talking, you've done so well for yourself, education wise, professionally wise, and then just now with your finances, do you hold back on how much you talk about your money with your family and maybe friends if they're not on the same level because you don't want to give them that perception of, oh, Sylvia is rich, you know, Sylvia has the money to help me or are you sharing with them kind of like what you're learning along the way? A little bit of both because I never really think of myself in terms of being rich. To me, it's, I don't really make more money than most people. I just am able to spend less money than most people. So my condo here was cheaper than my apartment before I had it. And I haven't had cable. I've got the same car I've had since high school. I'm just able to not spend money. And I think I was able to take advantage of the bull run from basically 2008 through now. So the investments did well. And like I said, I I always take my discretionary spending of now up to to $300 a month. So that's all I spend. And so everything else just gets automatically sucked into investments. So I've never felt like I had a lot of money. It's just that over years of doing that, those amounts in investments have grown. My friends, they know me and they know my mindset. So they always joke. Basically, every restaurant in Seattle is ridiculously expensive to me. And so I try to host people and have everyone just bring over a bottle of wine and whip up a little dish and we all just hang out here or somewhere else to prevent paying a lot of money for things. But with my friends, if they're interested and they put out feelers about being interested in what I'm doing or about saving money, then I will absolutely give them all the information they want. If I know that they're not interested, then I'll just keep that part separate. And when I'm with them, I try not to be the cheap person. So if you're going to go out, go out. Don't be the person saying, I just had the salad in the water. You make money for a reason. And so I firmly believe that you should have fun and you should enjoy your money. It's just that it should be in moderation to me. So I guess it depends on the friend. I know I've got friends who spend everything they make and they're fine with that. And so the hair on the back of my neck stands up a little bit, but I am completely straight faced about it. But if friends are interested in, okay, what are you doing? How is it that you think you're retiring in three years? I'll absolutely just tell them. Your story is definitely, I think, an inspirational one. And what I really, really like about it is that despite like the title of lawyer and what people perceive it to be, and you, you know, you could be living a totally like different lifestyle is that you're driving your car from high school, right? Still. Yes. And you still delivered pizza from Domino's Pizza on the weekends as when you were working a full-time law job. You know, like you really take intentional steps and you take those sacrifices. So anyone listening that thinks, you know what, I can't do it because when do I have the time? And of course, if you have a family and kids and there's more restrictions on your time, but I just feel like I get so inspired by hearing stories of people like you who are doing above and beyond. Like you could just be like chilling out, sleeping, saying you're tired, but you're not doing that. You're like hustling and staying true to yourself in terms of not doing the whole lifestyle inflation and spending money. I just think that's just so inspiring for anyone listening who's thinking like, 
how can I do this too? Like, what can you apply to your life? What can you change? How can you push yourself? Do you really want it? You really wanted to get out of debt. So you did anything and everything to get there. And you really want to retire early. So you're doing everything to get there. But it also sounds like you still enjoy your life. It's not like you're miserable. And again, the balance also needs to come into play. Yeah, absolutely. I firmly believe that everyone should have a floor in terms of quality of life that they are not going below for money. Because at the end of the day, money is just a means to an end. You shouldn't have a life that you don't enjoy just for the sake of money. I think that's taking it a little bit too far. So I think everyone should really on this journey still have a good quality of life as they're trying to work towards whatever goal. And I'll just say, just start. People might automatically turn off if they hear the word lawyer. Don't. Because I wasn't making more than anybody else at any other job, except I had six figures of debt. So I would just say what I did, just start. Start by taking a snapshot of where you are. And that means accounting honestly for all of your debt, all of your income, with no exaggeration of, oh, next year, I think I'll get this rate. No, just start with where you are and what your debt is, or if you don't have debt, whatever your goal is, and just come up with a one-month plan, a one-year plan, a five-year plan. Just break it down into amounts that help it make sense to you. And so for me, I had to do that with my debt. But since I was in a ridiculous amount of debt, I had to break that up into chunks. And even though over $100,000 worth of debt made me want to just kind of curl up in a ball, I could say, okay, what about this first 2000 Can I get a job that allows me to get $2,000 a month to put towards that? Okay. And if I can take that $2,000 a month from the debt, not from my day job, then I can allocate everything else from my day job to savings. And that can be Domino's Pizza, which it was for me. It could be Uber. If you've got a car that would pass the Uber test, that can be selling things on Etsy. That can be babysitting. I mean, everybody has skills. Everyone has a certain amount of time. All it requires is determining whether or not you want to apply your skills to your extra time to make extra money. And if the answer is yes, there's something out there for just about anybody. Perfect, perfect kind of to end on. I wanted to ask you one more question. So you said you read a lot of books, a lot from the library, which is a great choice because you're saving money. What books would you recommend to anyone who wants to start getting more into this and what resources? On a more philosophical end, I would say your money or your life, just to kind of put into perspective what money is good for and what it's not good for. In terms of actual application, I liked all the David Bach books, so like The Automatic Millionaire, and that's what really helped me start automating systems because, like I said, I'm horrible at budgeting. So if you could just say every month this amount is automatically sucked out without me having to do anything, great, because it saves me for myself. So I would say just about anything from David Bach, Your Money or Your Life. Susie Orman had a book that I really liked. I think it was Young, Fabulous, and Broke. And just kind of walk around that section. For me, it was the library. So once you hit the personal finance section, just kind of walk around and see if a title jumps out at you. There are a lot of blogs that can help as well. But but basically, just start. You might not even have a specific goal, but the goal will kind of become clearer 
as you start the journey. So just start. Excellent, excellent advice. And you're not a blogger, you're not a podcaster, you're not really online. Like it took forever to kind of like find you and track you down. <laughs> so I don't know how anyone can really get in touch with you. But if someone wanted to learn more, could they? I'm not really online. I don't really think of myself as someone with enough information or good enough story for a blog or a podcast. To me, I like to think of myself sort of like the McDonald's of personal finance help, where I'm not the high end anything, but if you just want a cup of coffee and talk, I'm around for that. Your story is amazing and totally <laughs> could be a blog or podcast, but that's probably not your speed. Totally okay. But you gave in so much great information. I mean, I'm sure people will have more questions. Perhaps we can have a follow-up conversation at some point. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Sylvia, this was so amazing. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your journey and your knowledge. I enjoyed our conversation. Oh, I'm glad to have participated. Thanks for having me. All right, journeyers, I hope you enjoyed that rewind episode with Sylvia, where she talked about becoming debt free and financially independent. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to take a screenshot, tag me at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and also best place or best way to share this content is with someone that you love, someone that you want to be on this journey with you. Just send them this episode link and I'll see you next week. Don't forget, you can get the episode show notes for this episode by going to journeytolaunch.com or click the description of wherever you're listening to this. And you can still grab your jumpstart guide for free to help you on your journey to financial freedom by going to journeytolaunch.com slash jumpstart. If you want to support me and the podcast and love the free content and information that you get here, here are four ways that you can support me and the show. One, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's Apple Podcasts, that purple app on your phone, your Android device, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it is that you happen to listen, just subscribe so you are not missing an episode. And if you're happening to listen to this in Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe there. I appreciate and read every single review. Number two, follow me on my social media accounts. I'm at Journey to Launch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I love, love, love interacting with journeyers there. Three, support and check out the sponsors of this show if you hear something that interests you. Sponsors are the main ways we keep the podcast lights on here, so show them some love for supporting your girl. Four, and last but not least, share this episode, this podcast with a friend or family member or coworker so that we can spread the message of Journey to Launch. All right, that's it. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.